Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Gregory Pickett. With all the niceties and amenities, I have to say, this crack house had top-notch customer service. (laughs) That and more, but before that, I just want to give a little shout-out to our latest Patreon member, Emily Stewart. We give a little shout-out every time someone gives $25 or more per month. You can give any amount per month that you like, and I cannot tell you how deeply grateful we are, how much it means to us that we have Patreon members who support what we do. If you love what we do, we really dearly need that help. We've had challenges this year, but we're celebrating 10 years of doing this, and we are dead set determined to have 10 more. And there are so many wonderful things awaiting you (laughs) if you become a Patreon member. There is so much content there. I think 20 hours or more of extra stories there. There's all the check-ins and interviews with members of the staff. You can have all kinds of prizes depending on how much you give. The first couple seasons of the show are remastered with the ads removed. You can get ads removed versions of the episodes that are coming out each week. There's just so much to find. If you become a member, you can become a member for as little as a dollar a month, uh, whatever you can give. It's hugely, hugely helpful to us. And that is all at patreon.com slash risk. And finally, you don't have time to go to the post office. It's such a hassle with all the waiting and getting there. But with Stamps.com, you can eliminate all that. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com, and right now our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Nightlighters behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Jeopardy. Uh, This is interesting. Uh, It's all people of color on this week's episode, which is pure coincidence. I just threw three stories I really liked together, and it happened to be like that. Uh, In a little bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful Wes Hazard, who's actually a teacher of ours at the Story Studio. Uh, But before that, we're going to hear a story that was shared when we went to St. Paul recently. We had a fantastic evening in St. Paul 
I don't know, a month or so ago. And this story was shared by Gregory Pickett. You can find him on Instagram at Gregory Poet. Here he is now. It's Gregory Pickett with a story we call 24 Hours. Um, in 2001, I had just been kicked out of the Navy. I was given a general discharge under honorable conditions for substance abuse problems. And basically, the way that went down was I told the Navy, hey, I'm a drug addict. And the Navy said, sweet, here's some separation papers. And so that's how it went down. Getting high was nothing new to me. I've been doing drugs since I was a kid. You know, I should say teenager. Every time you say kid, people were like, oh, bless my world. No, I was a teenager. I think the first time I snorted cocaine, I was 16. And the first time I did heroin, uh, was a couple of years later. It was just before I joined the Navy in 2000. So if you're keeping track at home, I was in the Navy for one year. In fact, it was actually one year and 25 days. But I got out of the Navy. That was a part of my life. I tried to get past of it. So I find a room for rent because I was essentially homeless because I'm like, oh, shit. The Navy was, like, supplying where I lived. That's why I fucked that up. So I found a room for rent. It was not a room for rent. It was actually a couch for rent. And it was 100 fucking dollars a week. And that's pretty pricey for just a fucking couch. But it's all I could find and really all I could afford at the time. This was the situation that I found myself in. I just got kicked out of the Navy. I'm hoping I can find work. Every day is a struggle to stay sober. I wasn't very confident about my job prospects. At some point, I even applied to Western Illinois University thinking, well, maybe I'll go back to college and that'll, you know, force me to get my life back together. But in my heart of hearts, I felt like that was still really a long shot. I was living in Virginia at the time. I had no friends or family there, but I had my best friend, Sean. He still lived in Chicago and he would give me those words of encouragement that you need to keep going, you know, hey, dude, it's all right, man, you're going to make it. Hey, you'll find a job. Just keep your head up, you know, that kind of shit. And that would keep me going for a bit. However, I was really thinking, man, fuck it. Why am I trying to stay sober? I just got kicked out of the Navy. That's like a pretty low point for me in my life. I should probably just keep getting high. I'm good at that. So heroin was my drug of choice. But being from Chicago and living in Virginia at the time, I didn't quite know where to go to get the heroin. So I had a couple of ideas for a couple of spots. And one morning I decided I was fucking Frodo Baggins. I was going to go on an adventure. And I'm going to go find heroin today. 
And so I went looking at these various spots, and I came up empty every time. But luckily, uh, one of the drug dealers I spoke to was pretty helpful, because in case you don't know, drug dealers are pretty fucking helpful. He pointed me in the direction of a crack house, a place where crack is sold to be consumed. And I thought, mmm, crack's really not my thing, but any port in a storm, am I right? You know? So I follow the directions, and I arrive at the house of crack. Yeah, in my mind, it was like a Game of Thrones thing. So it is this massive castle, estate, mansion, plantation-looking kind of place. It looked like 60 years prior, this was some beautiful, stately manor, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous kind of bullshit, you know? But in that moment, it was gray and dingy and you got these shutters on the windows and they're like hanging off the edge of the window frames and all of the grass in the front was dead just for that house though this house was lush green beautiful grass lush green beautiful grass on the other side dead horrible shit in the middle so I'm thinking wow here I am going into a crack house didn't see that coming Now, I had been doing drugs for years, and it dawned on me I had never been to a crack house. I didn't instinctively know what to do, so I just walked up to the front door and rang the doorbell. Bing, boom. (laughs) And the most kindest, most elderly, most grandmotherly-looking woman comes and opens the door. I'm telling you, this lady looked like every black grandmama I had ever seen in my life. She was like 70 years old. She had this mass of gray hair pulled back into a bun. Flip-flops. That's non-negotiable. They all have flip-flops. She was wearing this kind of plain bluish sundress with a black shawl over her shoulders. And she says, can I help you? My response was barely a whisper. I was so ashamed. It was like, it was my grandmama at the fucking door. And so I'm like, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm not going to lie to you. I rang your doorbell because I thought this was a crack house. I am so sorry. And then she smiles and says, oh, well, you got the right place. Come on in. The fuck? Oh, okay. All right. I was proud that I followed the directions. I was like, okay. Okay. So this is a bright, sunny day. It's about nine o'clock in the morning. So I walk through the threshold of this building and I walk into nightfall. It was like dark beyond dark. I was like, am I high already? How the fuck did that happen? Like they had like curtains drawn over all of the windows in this massive estate type house but that made a certain kind of sense to me because you see crackheads are kind of like vampires they're super fucking sensitive to light so I was like okay cool and I got the feeling that no one had really lived in this place for you know decades yet there was people everywhere there was the elderly grandma who let me in and her twin sister Wearing the exact same outfit. Yeah, that's not creepy at all. 
And then just random people milling about who I just assume were customers. So elderly twin grandma number one says, well, just go ahead and have a seat over there, baby. The person that you're looking for will be here in about 10 minutes. And I said, oh, over there. There, There's a waiting room. Oh, fuck. I didn't know crack houses had waiting rooms. Okay. Okay. So I walk into the waiting room and I have a seat. And I'm sitting next to a young lady. And we don't speak to each other. We give each other this kind of nod, I guess, that addicts give each other because we both know why we're there. Let's not have any conversations. So after 10 minutes, dealer arrives. First thing I think is, that motherfucker's on time. That's good business. I like that. So he comes in and he says, all right, who's first? And the lady sitting next to me, she jumps up. She walks out of the room. She goes into the next room. And the dealer follows and they close the door. Now, if you ask me, hey, Greg, what does a drug deal sound like? I could probably piece together some bullshit and kind of explain to you what a drug deal sounds like. If you said, hey, Greg, what does fucking sound like? That's what was coming out of that next room. Okay, I know what fucking sounds like. And I don't know what the rate of exchange is when you're talking about sex for drugs, but there was like 15 minutes of vigorous fucking going on. So after that was done, she came back into the room. She had her crack. She sat down and she began to partake. And then the dealer looks at me and says, all right, you're next, buddy. I said, sweet. Uh, I don't really have any uh, interest in fucking you, so I'm going to get my crack the old-fashioned way. So I take out my money, and I hand it over, and I think, ah, I don't even have a crack pipe. This is the essential tool one needs to engage in the smoking of crack. And as if reading my mind, the dealer says, man, you didn't even bring your tools with you, did you? And... Like, this was the right answer. I was like, oh, you, you will see, actually, I'm a heroin guy. And, you know, I couldn't find any. So that's why I'm here. You know, any poor in the storm, right? Am I right? You know? <laughs> and the dealer says, you know what? I've heard that. Actually, there's a drought on the, the heroin right now. I know it's an inconvenience. We should be at back up and running in two to three days. So for now, you know, here's a complimentary pipe. And you make sure you return this before you leave. And I'm thinking, okay, one, thank you for the heroin update. I didn't know that there was a fucking report that was going on, but good to know that's happening. And two, a crack house is a fucking legit business. There's fucking waiting rooms, complimentary pipes. I was like, this shit is crazy. Who knew? So I begin to start smoking. Now, Crack was never my favorite drug because no matter how good the crack is, you're only going to be high for about 15 to 20 minutes at a time. This is why I believe people can smoke crack for hours on end and not die. Because if you snorted cocaine for hours on end, death is pretty much a fucking promise. But in those 15 to 20 minutes, the world is yours. Every carnal delight and pleasure you can imagine is going to occur to you in those 15 to 20 minutes. They say, Greg, what does it feel like? Let me tell you like this. It's like basking in the sun on a beach 
having your favorite drink, watching your favorite TV show, listening to your favorite podcast, having your favorite meal, and having an orgasm all at the same time. So, in 15 to 20 minute increments, I would get high and I would come down, and I would get high and I would come down, and I would pay for more crack, and this would happen over and over and over again for hours on end. I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, this is a great way to spend a sunny day. (laughs) I wonder how long I've been in here. And then I thought about it. How long have I been in here? I kept noticing the space around me, and I couldn't get over how ancient everything looked and felt. I was fading away on this couch. I'm thinking about the couch. It's encased in plastic. Hadn't been 60 or 70 years old. It was this horrible sea foam, teal, turquoise, shitty-ass color. And I thought, is this going to be me? Am I going to be smoking crack for the next 60 years with plastic all around myself? I really thought this because... Smoking crack doesn't make you think like coherent thoughts. Like, will I be wrapped in plastic and collecting dust and becoming part of the scenery and somebody's going to sit on me and all these weird thoughts. And just then, one of the elderly grandmothers offers me a glass of water. And I thought, oh, that's so nice. But what I said was, oh, well, no, I'm cool. I don't need any water. Thank you. I'm okay. And she says, oh, no, baby, you need to drink this water. You've been getting high for hours. And when you smoke like that, you need to stay hydrated. You see, what it does is it increases your high. Look, y'all, I'm a sucker for good customer service. (laughs) With all the niceties and amenities, I have to say, this crack house had top-notch customer service. But now... The idea of time is fresh in my mind. I'm like, damn, how fucking long have I been in here? So I decided to look at my watch. And back then, I had a watch that had this little um, button that you would press. And when you press the button, the clock face would glow in the dark. And it was so dark in there. And I had been in there for hours and hours and hours, apparently. I figured it was probably about 9 o'clock at night. And I got there about 9 o'clock in the morning. And because I have a crack brain, logically, I said, 12 hours is... That's enough time smoking crack. You don't need to go past 12 hours, so I should probably wrap this up. So I pressed the little button, and I noted the illuminated time. It was 3 p.m., and I thought, whew, well, been here all day. Might as well stay all night. So I kept buying more crack, and he kept giving me more rocks, and I kept getting high and coming down. And this cycle kept happening over and over and over again for hours and hours on end until the wee hours of the morning eventually. Now, there's a thing that happens when you smell crack. It's got a bunch of names, but I call it being cracked out. You get super paranoid, and your heart starts beating like a jackhammer. I was in that stage of being a crackhead that day. And so in the wee hours of the morning, I'm smoking, and I'm just like, oh, my God, I got to stop doing this. Who the fuck am I? This isn't me. This isn't me. This isn't the kind of person I want to be. I'm supposed to be a heroin guy, but now here I am, a crack dude. I got to get the fuck out of here. I'm almost out of money. What the fuck am I going to do? Why don't I just get up and leave? I can't. I need fucking help. Somebody needs to push me out the door. They won't do that as long as I have money. Somebody's got to tell me the thing that I need to hear to get out of this place. (gasps) Sean. 
my best friend in Chicago, he'll know what to say. He'll say the right thing to convince me to get the fuck out of here. So I call him up. Hey, hey, what's going on, bro? Dude, bro, I fucked up. I got my unemployment check, and then I paid my rent on the couch for a week, but then I walked into a crack house, and I've been smoking for days. I don't know how long I've been here, but I'm running out of money. But for some reason, I can't get up and leave. I got to know some special thing to walk out of this place. And you, you're the only one in the world that can help me. Please tell me the thing that I need to hear to walk out of this place. God bless his heart. Sean says, well, you done fucked up now. You're on your own. I don't know what to tell you. Click. I listened to the sound after the click until it became a busy signal. And then I finally ended the call and I heard nothing but silence. I was truly alone. My best friend could not help me. I certainly wasn't going to call my parents. The elderly twin grandmas wouldn't give a fuck about my inner turmoil. What the fuck was I doing to my life? Who in the fuck did I think I was spending a more than half of my unemployment check on crack cocaine? I looked down at my hands. In my left hand, I had the complimentary pipe. And in the right hand, I had my cell phone. I put the cell phone in my right front pocket and I reached into my right back pocket to pull out my wallet. I pull it out and it was empty. No more money for crack. Isn't it funny how at that moment all of the amenities and niceties stopped? I think the elderly grandmas noticed I hadn't bought anything for about 40 minutes because they keep a pretty tight eye on that shit because, you know... This was a place of business. And one of the twin grandmas says, you gonna buy any more crack, baby? And I said, nah, no, I'm, I'm all out of cash. And I thought they were gonna like direct me to the ATM in the kitchen or something. And then the other twin grandma says, in the sweetest, most kindliest voice you've ever heard in your life, she says, all right then, baby. Get the fuck out. <laughs> and then at that moment... Both twin grandmas produce a crack pipe from out of their plain blue sundresses and take a hit simultaneously. Yeah, that's not creepy at all. But then I thought in that moment, oh, this must be how the crack dealers pay the elderly twin grandmas to use this estate for their place of business. Gotta say, they might sell crack, but that's some goddamn business acumen right there. So I start toward the door. And then from behind me, I hear, leave the pipe on the table by the door. I forgot about the complimentary pipe. So I place it on the table by the door and I open up the door to walk out and I'm blinded by the light. I'm like, holy shit, it is so fucking bright out here. Once I acclimate myself to all of this, I check my watch, 9 a.m. again. So I basically just spent a couple hundred dollars and 24 hours in a crack house. What the fuck? So I stumble home to my rented couch. And when I get there, there's a letter for me on the middle cushion of my rented couch. And that letter was from Western Illinois University. They had accepted me to go back to college. 
And I said, oh, this must be the universe telling me, hey, hey, stop fucking up. Go back to college. Stop doing drugs. That shit's stupid. And that's what I did. Thank you. (laughs) Although I didn't completely get off the drugs until 2009, this was that pivotal first step that I needed to begin that long road to recovery. Thank you all very much. I understand we have some crack and we're going to smoke it right here in the studio. I don't mm. know if you can get a shot of that. Now what you're going to do is you're going to put your rock in the pipe. Is that where the phrase put it in your pipe and smoke it comes from? I don't I don't care. Oh. Oh, whoa. You feel that right away. Wow, that's good. That's good. That's an immediate state of euphoria. Oh. oh. It's just refreshing. They're actually enjoying it. Of course they're enjoying it. It's crack. Ah, girl, you just smoke crack. How you doing? Doing good? All right, very happy to be here. I'm going to tell you about the craziest thing that happened to me last year. I'm standing there in my fresh pink windowpane check blazer, and I am calm, I am confident, and I am ready to kill motherfuckers, all right? I know every state capital and all the most common trivia about each. I've got every Heisman Trophy winner for the last 30 years on lockdown. I can tell you which village in Sweden has four separate elements of the periodic table named after it, all right? And the vice presidents? Go ahead, ask me something about the vice presidents, all right? I've had two separate books about those dudes sitting on my bedside table for weeks. I am ready to go. I am standing on the set of Jeopardy, America's favorite game show, something I've watched for 20 years and I am ready to fulfill my destiny. I'm going to be a contestant that day and I have done everything possible to prepare for this, all right? Because my goal there was very specific. I was not happy to be on Jeopardy. I wasn't content to like maybe win one game. Like, no, my goal was to win at minimum five games, a streak in Jeopardy parlance, thus securing myself a minor place in Jeopardy history and the guarantee of coming back for the Tournament of Champions later on in the year to win more money and be on TV more. Anything less than five games is failure in my eyes. And I have done everything to prepare for it. Since I got my audition notice five months earlier, I have spent four to five hours every single day prepping. I have swam in the Jeopardy archive, the online database of questions and answers. I've done 30 minutes of map study every single day. I've studied wagering theory. Every single book about Jeopardy I have read. It's gotten to the point where if I don't nail five final Jeopardies in a row, I do not allow myself to go to bed that night, all right? And if I get one of them wrong, you better believe I'm getting out of bed and reading the entire Wikipedia article completely, all right? Like, that is where I am, and I'm ready to go. When I walk in there, and Jeopardy only films two days per week, Tuesday and Wednesday, and they do five episodes a day. So if you ever watched the Monday through Friday week of Jeopardy, you can be pretty sure that all those episodes were filmed on the same day, and they have all the contestants come in, bring a couple changes of clothes, so that if you win, all you got to do is go back in, switch a shirt, change a blazer into a sweater, boom, it looks like tomorrow, okay? And they film it a couple of, you know, it airs a couple weeks later, months later. So I'm there and I'm ready to go. And we walk in and there's 12 contestants there on that Tuesday. They're going to use 10 of us 
Two of us roll over to the next day, Wednesday, all right? And we're sitting in the green room, and the entire morning is just like getting TV makeup on and like filling out tax forms and releases. And Karina, this awesome bubbly woman who had actually been at my uh, audition in Boston, she's one of the contestant coordinators. She's telling everybody like, hey, you guys were here. You should be proud of that alone. A lot of people take the test. They don't make it. A lot of people audition a bunch of times. They don't make it on the show. You are here. And no matter what happens, you should be proud of yourselves. Don't let anybody online or at home tell you otherwise. And I hear that, and I think I'm glad that she's telling that to everybody, but she's talking to these other people because I came here to win. All right, like that is what I'm going to do. And they take us out to the set and they want to get us some buzzer prep. Now, this is something that most casual fans of Jeopardy do not realize. The buzzer is everything. It is everything. Knowing trivia, being able to perform well under pressure, knowing how to wager, all that, extremely important. But the buzzer is the one true thing on Jeopardy because think about it. If you made it that far, you're amazing at trivia, all right? You are almost certain to be the best person at trivia in your immediate life, all right? But people don't realize is that most of the contestants know most of the answers most of the time. That's everybody. So you got to get in first. If you get in first, you will win money and win glory. And if you don't, you will fall in the dust. That's what it is. And it's kind of harder than you think because the Jeopardy buzzer, it's like the great motherfucker of the universe. All right. Like it is not mechanical. This shit is mystical. All right. They really want to make sure that no one buzzes in and like, you know, cuts off Alex or talks over him. So in order to do that, on set each day of taping, there is a person whose sole job is to listen to Alex Trebek. And when they feel that Alex is done reading the clue and not before, they hit a button. That button does two things. It sets off a set of lights on the side of the game board that you can't see at home, and it arms the buzzer system. If you buzz in before that system is armed, you were locked out for a quarter of a second, which in Jeopardy parlance is an, it's an eternity, all right? Like, you might as well, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, all right? And everything I just told you, I knew all that shit, because I studied buzzer theory. Like, I researched this, all right? Like, this is not new to me. I'm like, all right, let's do it. Let's ready to go. And they bring us on the set, and they have, like, uh, you know, the 12 of us, this heat of three, and they got this other contestant coordinator named Glenn, great guy. He's up there. He's sitting in Alex's spot, and it's weird because he doesn't look anything like Alex, and he's wearing a leather jacket, but I'm like, all right, whatever. And he's just, like, cracking jokes and throwing us easy softball questions. The whole point of this is to make sure that you get the hang of the buzzer. So it's, like, basic stuff, like, what's the capital of Canada and this is America so you probably think Toronto it's Ottawa but like whatever right like this is Jeopardy right we're on this and we get up there and I'm watching people and everybody's like some people are clearly better than others but like no one's doing horrible I'm like all right whatever and I get up there to go for my turn and I don't got it at all at all no facility on this buzzer. Every single question, I am buzzing in either too early or too late. I've got nothing, all right? I cannot explain to you the ocean of frustration it is to hear eight, nine, ten clues in a row. You know the answer to every single one, and you cannot buzz in at all. And I am reeling, okay? They take us back to the green room, and I am just 
at sea right now. This is the first time in five months of intensive prep that I have come face to face with the possibility that I might not win. And I know that sounds insane, but like I had not been allowing myself to think of the possibility of defeat. And now I'm sitting here in this green room right up against it. And I'm thinking to five months ago, the first comedy set I did after I got that audition letter, it was at a dive bar in Boston, Wednesday, weekday show, no one there, just the comics and this one drunk woman in the back who would have been drinking at this dive bar no matter what, whether there's a show or not, all right? And after the show, she came up to me and I thought she was gonna say, hey, congratulations on Jeopardy, but instead she said, I don't think you should go on Jeopardy. You're clearly putting too much into this. And she said that because that was a very loose, honest set for me. And when I was up there, I was talking about everything that could happen, that could go right, could go wrong. And I'd said that I knew that I would fall and become an emotional wreck if I did not win at least one game. And that furthermore, if the worst thing happened and I didn't have enough money to compete in Final Jeopardy, I was pretty sure that I was gonna kill myself. And all that is coming right back to me and it's really real five months later because now I'm in it and I'm just thinking, what am I going to do? Because I know from years of performing, when you do anything on stage, athletics, anything like that, you have to have some confidence, all right? If you feel that you are going to crash and burn, you will crash and burn. The doubt will make it true. And in my mind right now, I have nothing. I walked into that sound stage. I am Michael Jordan. I am Muhammad Ali. Five wins, let's do 10, fuck it. But no, now I am scared. I have no confidence. And I know that if I play right now, not only will I fail, but I will bomb hard. Eyes wide, drive mouth, just deer in the headlights if I go out there and play. I'm gonna be a fucking meme. One of the Trump supporters like, see, black people can't play trivia. Like that is literally (laughs) going on in my head. I can't play right now, I don't have it. And they picked the first two people who are going to go up and play the returning champion from last week. And he's a three-day champion, $78,000. As far as we know, this dude is a serial killer. No one wants to play him, all right? And thank God they don't pick me. They bring us all out to the little contestant section of the audience. We're watching it. And then it starts. And for this 30 seconds, things was okay. Like for the first time that day, I'm not in my head because the lights go down and the music comes up and it's Johnny and it's like, this is Jeopardy. And I've been watching this shit for 20 years. I'm like right here. It's surreal. Like for a moment, I'm like, holy crap, Alex, he's right there. Like it was ridiculous. All right. And then the game starts and I'm just sitting there thinking like, all right, Wes, like all you can do is watch this and maybe, maybe figure out a game plan. Watch and learn. Maybe you can figure something out. So I'm sitting there in the crowd. I'm holding my left thumb like it's the buzzer and just squeezing every time I think I should be ringing in. But I know enough to know at this point that you can't time it. I'm just not there. I'm just hoping. And we get through the first, the, the champion, he's unseated. And then uh, they go in, in the second and third games. Thank God, again, I am not picked. But the entire time, the entire time, those two games, I am drowning lost. There's no bottom in my stomach. I am just like sweat. Like I told everybody I was going to be on Jeopardy. I, 11 million people watch this. I'm about to go on this and like embarrass my family, my friends, America, like everything. Like it just like, I am going to just die up here. And like, I, I, this is the first time again in five months I'm allowing these thoughts. It's like, I can't believe it. I don't know what to do. I'm just drowning. And I'm just thinking of like uh, all the, the vodka I'm going to have to drink in the mornings for the next several months just to get out of bed to deal with this. Like I, I'm going to fall into emotional 
black hole. I know this. I am my own harshest critic. I am not kind to myself when I fail, and I am about to fail on the biggest stage that I have ever been on. And at this point, I'm literally sitting there. I'm making deals with God. I'm just like, please, please, just let me win one. I came in here five or nothing, and that's bust, but like, no. And like, now I'm just like, let me win one. I'll do anything to win one. I'll give up anything to win one. Please, let me have one, one. And we go to lunch, and now this contestant who'd just been with us chilling like everybody else in the beginning of the morning, filling out paperwork, now she's a new three-time champion, and we're all just staring at her with awe and respect, and in my case, jealousy. And I'm sitting there at lunch just like, I, I'm, I can barely eat a half bowl of tomato soup and some bread, and I'm trying to make small talk with this writer from Illinois, and I, I just, I, I'm not there, I'm not there. We go back, game four, I'm not picked again, and now I have hope. Now I have hope because I'm thinking if I can somehow be one of these two people who doesn't have to go today, I can go home, like back to the hotel, figure out something, do some research, get some rest, center myself, and critically have a full another buzzer practice session the next day. I'm thinking that's, I'm pinning all my hopes on that. That's all I'm thinking about. Game five, it is the luckiest break of my entire life. To this day, the greatest thing that has ever happened to me, it's like heaven opens and God's light just poured down. I'm not picked. I have a full day. I have a chance. I will be here tomorrow. I go back out to the Sony Picture Studio, the lot, the garage, my rental car is parked, and I just sit in there for like 30 minutes. I don't even have the engine on. I'm just thinking like, this is not what I thought. I've been five months. I didn't plan. Like, this is not what I thought it was going to be like. What, what, what's going on? And finally, I just look in the rear view mirror and I'm like, you got 15 fucking hours to figure this shit out. Do it. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I drive back to the hotel, park in the lot, and I'm walking into the hotel. And in about 30 feet away, I see this other contestant. And she had won one game that day. And then the very next game, her first defense, uh, she had not had enough money to compete in Final Jeopardy, and she couldn't play then. And she's surrounded by her family, and she's ecstatic. She's like, you know, she's a Jeopardy champion. No one can ever take that away from her. She's just like, I hear her say, like, you know, you win some, you lose some. And she's thrilled. And full stop, if you are, have ever been on Jeopardy, you step on that stage, you have my utter respect, for real. It is not easy. No matter who you are, you have my respect. But as I'm walking into the hotel, I think to myself, Wes, if Jesus, a sorcerer, a genie, whatever came up and of right now and offered you that deal, I guarantee you tomorrow you will win one game. But I guarantee you the very next game, you will not have enough money to compete in Final Jeopardy. Would you take that deal? Didn't even take me like half a second. I was like, nah, I want to play. And at that moment, I'm like thinking, all right, maybe we got a little competitive spirit, come back, whatever. I go upstairs, I take a shower, I wash the TV makeup up. I'm sitting at the edge of the bed, and I just get into it. I attack the shit. I just Google immediately, like, you know, Jeopardy buzzer strategy. And most of these links are purple, because I've been here before, all right? And I, but I'm just digging through anything. I'm like on like the, like the 15th page of Google. I'm on like Reddit message boards and like fan pages, all right? Like 14,000 people approximately have been on Jeopardy. A lot of them have written about it online. I'm digging deep. I'm in the basement of Google. And I find two little pieces that I hadn't seen before that might help, help me. One guy says what he did was you read the clue ahead of time. You remember the last word. You close your eyes. When Alex says that word, you ring in then. I'm like, all right, that sounds kind of plausible. I don't know, but we'll see. And then two separate people said that what helped them is they changed the buzzer from their dominant hand to their non-dominant hand. I'm right-handed. And all this time, I have never once considered holding the buzzer 
buzzer in my left hand. And I'm like, fuck it, I'm out of ideas, let's try it. And I queue up two games from the 90s on YouTube. And I stand there, like, you know, like I've been practicing the entire time, standing up with a ballpoint pen in my hand, just clicking, trying to get the timing right. And again, I know you can't fake this in that home, but whatever, it feels good. Both of those strategies work in practice, whatever. And I just crash out. I'm still on East Coast time. I had a five-hour energy for breakfast that morning. I just sleep, the sleep of the dead, for like four hours. And I wake up, and it's a little bit past one. And I sit up in the hotel room, and I'm cross-legged in the bed, and the only light is my laptop screensaver. And I'm just thinking about everything that happened that day and everything that's going to happen tomorrow. And I'm just thinking, like, Wes, you are probably going to lose on Jeopardy. And that is hard, hard, hard to take because that is the one thought that I've spent five months not allowing myself to have. And then I think, all right, that can go down one of two ways. Either you can walk out there, deer in the headlights, eyes wide, dry mouth, look like you just got kicked in the gut and fail hard, sourpuss face, or, or you can go out there, hold your head high, crack a joke with Alex, maybe make Alex, you know, in America laugh, promote your humor book in the little interview and just go out there and be on a fucking game show. And like, like that, like that, it, 180, 180. I can't describe it. After five months of militaristic, monastic, self-denial training, on a dime, my goal goes from like, win, 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 to have fun. And the biggest weight in the world just falls off me, like, like nothing. And all of a sudden, I am thrilled. And it's like early in the morning, and I start running around my hotel room. I'm listening to like a Drake and Future mixtape talking about, I want some big rings. And I'm like, I'm probably going to lose, but hell, whatever, do it, all right? And I'm just going to go have fun, and I'm going to be West House. Because I'm going to be on Jeopardy. I've been watching this for 20 years. I'm going to be in the TV, all right? Like, I'm doing that soon, whatever. A couple hours go by and I walk back on the set and I'm wearing the same windowpane check blazer because that was my day one outfit from the beginning. And I walk in there and they got new people in and everybody's doing the paperwork and everything and they bring us out again for more buzzer time. And this time I try the eyes closed thing and it's marginally more effective, like 10, 15% more ring-ins, but still pretty bad. I'm really doing awful here, like clearly worse than everybody else. And they cycle me out And I get off and I'm just like mind racing and I go up to Karina, the contestant corner, and she's just got the biggest brown eyes and the biggest smile. And I'm like, you've been doing this a long time. Like, is there anything, you have any advice, anything you can tell me? And she just has the most placid, serene look on her face. And she's just like, hey, I, I, I think you're buzzing a little bit too early there. You just got to give yourself more time. And I'm like, I know that. Like, I know technically, clearly what is wrong, but it was so helpful It was so helpful. She told me nothing I didn't already know and everything I needed to hear. I walked away from that conversation. I just felt loved. I don't know. It was weird. It was just like, all right. And like, so fine. And we get up there and I go up for the last, this is my last couple of questions of buzzer training. And I get up there and right before I just go like, whoo, switches to my left hand. And Oh my fucking God, that is everything. Everything changes all of a sudden. I'm ripping like two in a row, three in a row. I'm killing this shit now. And oh my God, I cannot explain this. But switching it to my left hand, which I never thought to do, all of a sudden, I'm laying waste. I'm feeling real good, all right? And like, they bring us off. We go back to the green room, and they pick my name first. And I'm like, all right, let's go meet your destiny. And I go out there, and Je Jeopardy's fast. Jeopardy's so fast. 
30 minute block of programming. If you take out ads, it's 22. You take out Alex's intro and the interviews and the credits and final Jeopardy, you're playing Jeopardy actually answering questions and buzzing in for 15 minutes. That shit is so fast. And 22 minutes later, I was a Jeopardy champion. I did that. Thank you. And I did it again, and I did it again. And then we go to lunch, and now I'm the three-time Jeopardy champion, and people are looking at me, and I also can't eat again, but this time it's for good reasons, and I'm just thinking, all right, this is most of it, you're more than halfway there, two more, I the tiger, baby, and I go out in my fourth game, and I lose. I lose my fourth game. And as I'm sitting there watching the last game of the day, I am racked with two completely opposite emotions. On the one hand, I have never felt more disappointment, more disgust, more sorrow. I spent five months training for this specific thing and you just, that's how you're gonna do it? Like you just fail like that? I, I hate myself more than I can describe to you. At the same time, I feel not happiness, not joy, but relief, relief that I don't have to kill myself, which is in its own kind of joy, all right? I'm like, all right, we can not have to die now. And like, I'm dealing with this, sitting here watching that. And I've thought about this every day for the last year and a half, all right? And it's gotten better. Like, you know, do I wish I had won five games? Absolutely, absolutely. My entire life would be different now. I would have spent the last 18 months in deep training eight hours a day to continue on playing the TO Tournament Champions. Am I happy for what I did and grateful? Yes, I know now how hard it is to even win one game. And I won three, and I am happy for that. And I am thankful. And I think about it, it's like life is not a game, but sometimes if you were lucky, it is a game show. And if you don't have fun at the game show, what are you really doing out here, all right? And I've tried to take that and tried to apply that, and it's a work every day, but I've done it. But I will say this, I do know what Alex Trebek smells like. <laughs> and it is as awesome and dignified and, and, uh, as you can possibly imagine, but don't ask me, because I'm taking that secret to my grave, all right? <laughs> I am Wes Hazard, a stand-up comic and storyteller, originally from Stoughton, Massachusetts, and I am a three-time Jeopardy! champion. Thank you guys very much. is Weird Al behind me now. And we just heard from Wes Hazard, who you can find at weshazard.com. I had a fascinating conversation with Wes after he told his story. I said, you know, were you really 
suicidal about all that. And he said, I wish I had had more time on stage to unpack this. But he said, if you have a huge goal that means the world to you in your life, be careful about attaching your entire self-worth to the process of achieving that goal. Because on the one hand, that will ensure that you put your all into it. But on the other hand, if you fail to achieve what you were going after, then you've set yourself up for a real psychological mess. So, an interesting little addition, I thought, that I would mention after that story. Now, before Wes, we heard an interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Our final story on this week's episode is quite something. Darylise Lyons came up to New York from Philadelphia to tell this story at the show we do once a month at Caveat. It was emotional because there's incidences of uh, child abuse in this story. But man, what a beautiful job Darylise did in sharing it. You can find her online at daraleeslyons.com and here she is now with a story we call Hurtful. So I'm five years old, and I feel incredibly special and incredibly loved. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that I am the only child of a single mother. And my mom adores me. She just thinks that I am the best thing ever. And she has this boyfriend who also thinks that I'm the best thing ever. And I call him SD, which is short for stepdad. And he calls me baby girl. Um, because I am his favorite. And he actually has a child of his own, a biological son, but I am still his favorite. Somehow I managed to get that favorite child spot, and I revel in it. I am just so lit up by the love of the adults in my life and the people around me. And so one day, my mom is not at home, and SD lives with us at the time. And so one day my mom's not at home, which is nothing new, because I spent a lot of time with him. And we were playing, and I crawled up on his lap, and I was sitting on his lap, and suddenly I felt something hard and uncomfortable, and I didn't quite know what it was, but we were playing, and you know, I still felt so special, and I was still his baby girl. And then we started talking, and I don't remember how this happened, but I remember him saying something about what it felt like um, for adults to kiss. And I asked what, what it was like, because I, you know, I didn't know. I was just a little kid. I'd been kissed on the cheek. I'd been kissed on the forehead. Um, and he said, why don't I show you? And then our tongues were dancing, and I felt lit up again and I felt loved and I was just that baby girl but I could feel that thing getting harder and I didn't want it to but at the same time I just wanted to be cherished and I knew that he was cherishing me and when it was over I couldn't get off his lap fast enough I didn't know quite why it was wrong but I knew that there was something not quite right about it 
And I knew enough not to tell my mom because he was my SD. He was the father figure in my life and I didn't want that to be taken away. So time went on and I was still his baby girl and still his favorite. And he still had his son who I'll call Oliver and his son would come and stay with us sometimes. And his son was seven years older than me. And um, oh my gosh, he was the light of my life, this boy, Oliver. He was the most beautiful, the most magnificent boy I'd ever seen. And he was kind of like my brother, but I also had this crush on him because he was older. And um, most of the time he didn't pay any attention to me because I was just some twerp. But every once in a while I'd be eating popcorn on the couch and he'd come over and he'd put his grubby fingers in my popcorn and we'd like brush fingers and I was all lit up inside, you know. And um, and I just, I just wanted him to pay attention to me. And so usually he wouldn't, but every once in a while when my mom wasn't home, SD and Oliver would um, take me into the kitchen and they'd point me towards the fruit bowl. And the first time it happened, I didn't know what to do, but after they taught me what to do, I did. Um, And so I'd take a banana out of the fruit bowl and I'd peel it very tenderly because I knew enough to be careful. And then I would stick the banana into my mouth as deep as I could and I would move back and forth on the banana the way that they taught me to and they would comment about how one day I was going to make some man so happy and I really just wanted to make both of them happy because you know they were the people who mattered most to me other than my mother and they were certainly the people who loved me the most and I knew you know I got really good at what I was doing with the banana and so I could you know, not use my teeth and not gag and I just felt like, wow, I've got this skill. But again, you know, I didn't tell my mother because I knew that if she knew, I might not have access to this love anymore. So then, fast forward, and I'm 10 years old and Oliver comes to stay with us for a whole summer and I feel so lucky that he's gonna be with us for the whole summer, only he still pays absolutely no attention to me uh, most of the time. And, um, and our parents, SD and my mom, put us in the same camp and so we're going to the same camp together and you know he's hanging out with all the cool kids. I'm this 10 year old and he's 17 and um, you know he's hanging out with the girls who wear bikinis and I'm still stuck in this one piece and you know all his friends know that rim jobs have nothing to do with cars and you know like I'm just so out of the loop and he's this like dark honey colored guy and he's tall and he's broad shouldered and I am in love with him and he's my first ever crush and I just want him to want to spend time with me and then one day one hot summer day when our parents are out of the house I'm up in my bed. I have this big, tall bed that I climb up to uh, with a ladder, and it's got this cool desk that pulls out underneath, and I have these little mermaid sheets because I'm still young enough to believe in Disney princesses, and I want to be like Ariel. You know, I want to be a mermaid, and I don't know enough yet to know or to even sort of internalize that in order to get the guy, she had to lose her voice. And, you know, she had to sort of be kissed in order to regain her ability to speak. And and I didn't really put two and two together 
back then because I just still thought like, wow, love, love is magic, love is real. So anyways, I'm up in my bed and um, there's a knock on my door and I say, come in and the door swings open and there's Oliver standing in the doorway, you know, looking just as delectable and broad shouldered as ever and smiling. He has this shark-like smile. And um, so that's something about him. You know, we used to call him the shark because he would open up the refrigerator door, go in, take one thing out, take a bite of it and put it back. And so we were always like opening the refrigerator door and getting these surprises that there were missing pieces of things. Um, and we'd laugh about that all the time. We laughed about a lot in our house. Like um, we laughed about the time when um, all of us were really hungry and SD, um, none of us wanted to go to the grocery store and SD said that Oliver had to go. And so he went um, and he found a $100 bill in the aisle. And so he came home with this $100 bill and he's waving it in my face like some green flag of victory, right? And um, SD made him split the money with me. And when Oliver protested, he said, you know what? Like either you're gonna give her half or you're gonna give, give her the whole thing because that's my baby girl and she's my favorite. And I felt really superior in that moment to be the favorite. But I also knew that Oliver was my favorite and um, I wanted to be his favorite too. So that day when he knocked on my door and swung it open and smiled that shark-like smile at me and he said, do you want to come and play? I said, absolutely. And I could not get down off of my bed fast enough. And I ran after him. I sprinted into the hallway. And he said, you know, I followed his 17-year-old broad-shouldered body down the hall to his bedroom. And, um, you know, and I was just 10 and still believing in fairy tales and love. And um, he opens the door. And I go in with him. And I don't know what game we're going to play, but I know that I just want to do anything that he wants to do with me. And then the door shuts behind us and I hear the lock click and um, I don't know why he's locking the door because our parents aren't home so um, then he tells me that I have to do to him what I did on all those bananas and um, I don't say no but I also don't say yes and um, before I know it you know I'm down on my knees and I'm bobbing on his banana. And I can feel his hand on the back of my head. And I can't, I can't get away. And I can't stop and I can't scream and I feel trapped. I don't quite know what it is that I'm tasting, but I know that it's very uncomfortable and I don't feel the way that I want to feel playing with this man that I love. And then with my head held in place, I swallow his semen and I swallow my shame. And when I look up, I look up and we lock eyes and I still love him just as much. But I know that he's never going to love me back the way that I want him to love me because I know that something about me is now tainted and broken. And I'm never quite going to get it back. And I think that I'm going to be able to keep this a secret, like I've kept everything else a secret. But 
I can't. And after a few months, I tell my mom the truth about what happened. And um, she wants to get Oliver in trouble. She's really angry at him, and she says she wants to get him in trouble, that he did something wrong. And I don't want him to be in trouble because I still love him. And so I tell her that. And she gets angry at him. And then she gets angry at me. And I get angry at me, but I can't get angry at him because I'm still in love with him. And I'm not sure anymore because so much time has passed. I'm not sure if she cut them, Oliver and SD, out of our lives or if I cut them out of our lives, but I know that there was a dividing line between when I had these two men in my life and in my corner and when I was their baby girl and adulthood and when I wasn't. So anyways, eventually I get older and both Oliver and SD, they reach out to me again and um, I tell them that I don't want anything to do with them. And Oliver, he writes me letters from prison. He went to prison years later. I don't quite know what he did, but he... Um, he would tell me that I was the one that got away and I was the love of his life. And I would tell him that I didn't feel the same. I don't feel the same. And then a couple years ago, I get a random message on Facebook from a family friend. And she says, um, do you know what happened to your SD? And I said, no, what happened? And she said, he died in a motorcycle accident. And I said, oh, my God. And she goes, I'm going to send you something. And so she sends me a copy of his obituary. And I read it. And in the obituary where it lists surviving relatives, it lists Oliver as his son, and it lists me as his daughter. And so I read it. And I start to laugh. And I start to cry. Because my feelings still to this day are messy, and they're confusing. And there's a few things I know. I know that I still, if I'm going down on someone, I still can't have them put a hand on the back of my head. And I know that I still can't eat bananas. Um, no interest in eating a banana ever again. And I know that I will always love Oliver. And I will always love SD. But I also know that I love myself too much to ever let anyone in my life whose love is hurtful and painful. And I know that I deserve to have a voice, to have a story, and that I am beautiful. And I don't need anyone else to rescue me because I rescued myself. So thank you.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Arctic Lake behind me now, and we just heard from Darylise Lyons. Don't forget, we are at patreon.com slash risk if you want to help keep risk running. We really really do need it uh we have all kinds of extra content there for our fans that is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash risk if you're interested in storytelling training of any kind whether it's one-on-one training over skype or our video courses or in-person workshops or corporate workshops that is all at the storystudio.org And if you want to see Risk live, information about where we're appearing next is always at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.